Well, believe it or not, next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, which means it's the Sundays leading up to Christmas. I don't know about you, but that's kind of hard to completely wrap my head around that the year went by that fast, but, uh, but it did. And so here we are. We're closing up the series on the book of Colossians today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians. We're going to be at the last part of it and then again uh, at the end, right at the beginning of Colossians. If you're using the Bible in front of you, that's uh, in the pouch in front of you. That's page 680. So again, I say uh, if, you, if you would like a copy of the scriptures, please take that one with you. If you know someone that needs a Bible, uh, there's a cheap Christmas gift for you. You can take that Bible, wrap it up nicely, and, and give it to them. Uh, but we would love to see God's Word in as many hands as possible, so, uh, so please use that, take it with you. We'll be on page 680 in that Bible, Colossians chapter 4. But let's just recap a little bit where we were last week. Last week, we closed out uh, Paul's real preaching and teaching in this. What we're going to look at today is how he closes out the letter, but... Um, but he, he closes the whole thing out by looking at uh, putting on the new self in chapter 3. We talked about how there's this transition in, in, in all of Paul's letters, but it happens here between chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Paul's instructing on the intricacies of the gospel, and then he starts talking about how that produces fruit in our lives in the second half of his letters. So the way it's set up in Colossians is chapter 1 and 2 really lay out the 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 more academic nature of the book, and that's what is the gospel. And then chapter 3 and 4 really lay out more of the what fruit does that produce in our lives. The practical nature of it, I guess, is a, a better way of putting it. And so that's how Paul closes out his thoughts. And we, we looked at the two things last week to say what are, the re, what are the things that Paul's saying. And one is that as followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to pray. We have a responsibility to be people of prayer. That, that, that Paul lays out not just that we're supposed to pray, but he instructs on how to pray, and he, he, he instructs us on the proper things or the things that he found most important to ask for prayer for. So if we look at, at what he says, uh, starting at verses 2, in chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So we, we pointed out some of the how he words it, continue steadfastly in prayer. He's, he's basing that on an assumption, a belief that, that these people that he's writing the letter to are already people who are of prayer. He believes that the gospel has advanced at the level that it has advanced because people are praying, because prayer is happening. There's, there's, uh, there's an assumption or a, a deep-rooted belief by Paul that prayer is something that is happening at a high level amongst the churches that are established because if it wasn't, in Paul's estimation, he wouldn't still be alive. He, he, the churches wouldn't continue to grow these cities where the gospel is expanding, like Ephesus and Philippi, these, these cities wouldn't be expanding the gospel. They would actually sort of be going inward with it. So he's basing this, 
command, this, this reinforcement of the commands of Jesus to pray on, on evidence that he's seen that people must be praying. Somebody must be praying because there's people coming to know Christ. The gospel is expanding. People are willing to stand up to persecution like never before. People have to be praying because this kind of stuff doesn't happen if people aren't praying. So Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. So he tells us uh, that we need to pray, and he, then look at how he asks for prayer, that, that, that God may open doors for the gospel. That's what he asks them to pray for, that God would open doors for the gospel, that he would, he would keep doing that, and, and because he's already done that, Paul's saying, because he's already opened doors for the gospel, I'm in prison. If people weren't praying for doors to be open to the gospel in a hostile environment towards the gospel, I wouldn't be in prison. So kudos to you for praying. Keep it up. That's what he's saying. Remember, I'm in here because you're praying, because you're being faithful to this, because we're being faithful to this calling, the world hates us. Jesus told us they would. They actually do. He wasn't, he wasn't being fruitful. He wasn't being fruity or like uh, dramatic in his lingo. Jesus wasn't being poetic. He was being literal. The world will hate you because of me. So Paul's reinforcing that by saying, keep praying because we're seeing the gospel expand. We're also seeing more and more hatred spewed at us because of this. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in prison. So keep praying. And then the other thing that he reinforced in what we talked about last week is that we're to walk in wisdom and, and responsibility we have of living out this witness, this calling, to be witnesses of God's grace to those around us. That what he's, what he's praying for is being reinforced in how they're trying to live this out. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You know, I was rereading this, this week when I read that, any Partridge family fans in the room? So David Cassidy died on Tuesday. You know, teenage heartthrob, right? And, uh, hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Anybody? Come on, get there we go. Okay. So, so David Cassidy's this like teenage heartthrob, right? At the, at the time, coming out of that show, like he was on the cover of magazines. And his daughter sent out word this week after he passed away of what his final words were. Did anyone see this? His final words, he looked up at his daughter and he said, so much wasted time. And then he died. So much wasted time. Now, I believe that you can live a purposeful life and the end of your life still evaluate that you wasted a whole lot of it. So I'm not trying to sound critical on the man at all. That was his perspective on his own life, though. Now, we don't have the right or the privilege of reading into that exactly what he meant. All I know is that's what he said. As he was dying, that's what hit his mind. The last words that he spoke to his daughter was so much wasted time. So what Paul's challenging his church with, what Paul's challenging the church with, is walk in wisdom towards those you come in contact with. There are people that don't believe this stuff. 
There are people that think what you say is nonsense. Some will be gentle in their disagreement with you. Some will be interested in what you believe. Some will be hostile towards what you believe. Walk in wisdom towards people who don't believe what you believe. But make the most of the time that you've got. Don't use that as an excuse to do nothing. You still have a command in front of you to go. He's reinforcing the teachings of Jesus. To go and walk in wisdom towards people who don't think like you and live like you and and talk like you. But let your speech always be gracious. Talked last week about how that was so like stinging. Because I don't always have gracious speech. We were talking last night, uh, Meg's dad, big Italian man, Gino Bartoletti. It doesn't get much more Italian than that, right? And Meg's brother, Dane, and he are very much alike. So as they were grow- as Dane was growing up, he would, he would frustrate Gino to no end. And Gino always tells stories about how he would want to like pick, it, pick Dane up and throw him through a wall, right? He wouldn't do that. So he would get so frustrated. He's like, and he'd like bang his own forehead with his fist because he just didn't know what else to do and he didn't want to take it out on Dane. And I always thought that was kind of silly and a fun story that we shared. And then we had Jack. (laughs) And I think to myself, I get it now, Gino. I get it. I get it. An obstinate three-year-old will force my tone and my words to not be very gracious at times. But that doesn't change what what Paul is saying here. He's saying, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If we're going to walk in wisdom towards people who don't think like us, that don't believe like us, we're not going to be militant about what we believe. We're not going to be the one that stands up with a megaphone on the, bo- on the soapbox in the middle of the city and tell people that they're going to burn in hell. Because that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that you need to walk in wisdom towards people that don't think like you and don't believe like you. And let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you will always have the right answer for when you walk into somebody, when you run into somebody, when you have a conversation with somebody, that doesn't believe what you believe. Because their belief system shouldn't change yours. That's how Paul closes out his teaching. And that gets us to what we want to talk about today. I find it fascinating how Paul closes out this book. So follow along with me. And then we'll explain a little bit. Starting at verse 7 of chapter 4 in Colossians. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Do you realize that Paul mentions more than 13 different people or groups of people in this closing to his letter? I find that to be fascinating. You see, Paul didn't do ministry in a vacuum. Paul wasn't the celebrity sitting on top of the pyramid, expecting everyone to come to him. Now, we live in a Christian celebrity culture. It kind of drives me crazy. That the goal of ministry has become for some people to just get a good book deal and get people to come to your church. Now, I have gleaned a lot of wisdom from some of those books. Some of those books aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Paul was a, quote-unquote, celebrity of his day. Amongst the Christian circles, everyone knew who Paul was, not just because of what he was teaching, but because what he was rescued from, what he was brought out of. When he says in here that there were only a few that were of the circumcision, what he's saying is there are only a few fellow converted Jews amongst me, and I find comfort in that. I find comfort in that and that they have, they have seen the power and the truth and the fullness of the gospel and have given their lives over to it. I find comfort in that, is what he's saying. But Paul called himself a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. <coughs> At a young age, probably in his early 20s, Paul was rising up through the circuit to be the Jew amongst Jews. And he was zealous. Man, he, he believed it. And it infuriated him that there would be people who would believe anything other than the truth of the law in the first five books of what we know to be the Bible. And in his, in his youth and in his vigor and in his heightened sense of justice, he latched on to what he believed to be right and he was going to do everything in his power to stop anyone from believing anything other than what the Jewish temple was teaching. So if you believe anything other than this, I will hunt you down. Especially if you are teaching and living out of this, this Jesus stuff. So that's what he does. And then he gets to the point where he has whole groups of people that are as, as hostile towards the teaching of Jesus as he is. And they'll do anything he says. The proof of that is in the book of Acts when a young man named Stephen is teaching and preaching and preaches a, a really good sermon. And people are starting to look over here at the Jewish leaders and then look at Stephen and then say, I'm going to go with Stephen 
That sounds like truth. And the Jews over here get so infuriated with that that on the spot, they start picking up stones. And when I say stones, I mean this big or bigger. And they start hurling them at Stephen. Now, you can't hurl a stone as effectively if you're wearing all your clerical robes and all of your your ornate attire. So they have to take those outer garments off and they have to put them someplace that's protected. So where do they go? Well, the scriptures tell us plainly that these men laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know as Paul. So he said, guys, I think you should do something about this. You know what I've taught you. You know what we've done to guys like this. And so they all take their outer robes off so they can get a better, better get throw on their rocks. And they lay their robes down because they can't get dirty. They, they have to be clean. They have very strict laws about this stuff, right? And they don't mess around with that. They're very good rule followers. And Paul says, I'll tell you what, you leave your stuff here. I'll keep an eye on it. You go ahead and take care of this. And just a few short verses later, Saul's on his way to his next place, Damascus. There's some gospel movement happening there. And he wants to take care of it. He wants to squash it. He's now feeling, he's feeling emboldened because of this whole Stephen thing because Stephen was the first actual martyr, the one they killed. Well, now people in the Jewish community are sort of celebrating that, that we made them scatter. All right, we're getting them out of Jerusalem now. Let's, uh, let's go find them everywhere else. So he heads to Damascus to take care of as many Christians as he can. And on his way there, blinding light hits him. A voice from heaven says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's blind. For three days, he's blind. Somewhere along this, he gets time with Jesus. Jesus teaches him, and then he gets his blindness taken away. And we never see him go back to that lifestyle. So when there's a conversion that big, that real, it gets people's attention. When all of a sudden there's this guy coming into your city who you knew was on his way to your city to kill you, but now he's on his way to your city to help you. I'm sure there was a little bit of uneasiness. I'm sure there's a little bit of What's this guy doing here? Like, what's his game? What's going on? I'm sure people weren't very warm reception to him at first. Yet over time, he was able to use how God gifted him to see churches expand all over that part of the world. So when I say that Paul was a quote-unquote celebrity, what I mean is amongst the Christians and the Jews, which was a pretty big, wide swath of humanity at that point in time, everyone knew who Paul was. And whether their feelings were good, bad, or indifferent, everyone knew who Paul was. I was in the city yesterday. I came off the elevator, and uh, we parked at the parking garage under Love Park. So I came up out of the ground (laughs) and come into the new Love Park area. It's not completely done yet. And as the elevator doors open, Ryan Howard was standing in front of me waiting to get on the elevator to go down. And I stared at him. I didn't even move. I I was just like... (laughs) 
So I'm pushing the stroller. I've got a double stroller with three kids on it, and I'm trying to push Meg's behind me. So get out of the elevator. What are you doing? There's so many people everywhere. And I'm just like this. I texted two people to tell them that I saw Ryan Howard. One got back and he said, whoa, that's cool. And the other one asked, was he a jerk? Because people have different experiences with celebrities, right? Some people say, no, the first person said, was he cool? Never met him, just a big baseball fan. It's like, oh, man, that's cool. Did you talk to him? No. No. And the other person had an experience with him or knew someone who did, and it, was, it didn't go well. The reason I bring that up is because that's the kind of person Paul was. He had polarity about him. It, it was either you, you were, at this point, you were a Jew and you, you hated him because he abandoned you. And now he's actually recruiting for the other team and he's good at it. He's just as good at it on that side as he was on ours. So now we really don't like Paul. Do you understand how much they wanted to shut Paul up? I'm just going to give you this sidebar to help make sense some of the things he says in this letter. Think about how much they wanted to shut Jesus up and what they did to him to what they thought would be effectively shut him up. Think about it. Think about how they hunted him down, how they schemed, how they got people from his own camp to turn on him, how they came up with charges, how they convinced the whole Roman government that he was guilty of something he wasn't guilty of. How they got all the people in town to say, hey, listen, we don't know if Pilate's going to buy our story, but we do know that he hates feeling unpopular. So we're going to get all of you against Jesus, and if we can get you to scream and yell loud enough, we know that we can hit his popularity button, and he'll do whatever we want. Think of all the scheming that went down to make that happen. And they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. In their minds, kill Jesus, it'll all go away. Now we know they were <laughs> very disappointed with how their plan worked out because now Jesus comes back from the dead and, and it just gets worse for them. It's like cutting a worm in pieces and thinking it's going to die. And all of a sudden, a week later, you've got 14 worms. Isaiah brought home from Dwayne's house one night one snail, one snail. Here's what I didn't know about snails. They don't need a mate, but they multiply fast. Eric, you warned me this would happen. I bet we have 50 snails in our fish tank from that one. I, I use that as an illustration because they thought if they, if they got rid of Jesus, we're going to get rid of the source, this will all go away for us. Jesus comes back from the dead, and all of a sudden, now they've got a massive problem on their hands. It just won't go away. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how much they wanted to get rid of Jesus and how much more they hated Paul. Think about that. See, Paul came out of their camp. Ever since the day he was born, he was being trained and equipped he was being molded and shaped to be Saul. And they saw it happen. He was their guy. And then all of a sudden, he meets this Jesus, and everything turns. Everything we taught this guy for nothing. Not only that, he's getting people to turn away from this teaching. Think of how, much, how bad they wanted to get rid of him. 
So when Paul says, when Paul says the whole way back in, in verse 2 of chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Do you understand? He's saying continue in prayer. When he's saying that, he knows people are praying because he's still alive. When he gets arrested, he gets arrested by Romans. The Jews can't touch him. So he's sitting in prison completely protected because the Jews can't get him when they're sitting in a Roman jail. Heck, the Romans even let me write letters. I mean, this isn't the sweetest place I've ever lived, chained to another Roman guard in a dirt dungeon, but they at least give me a pen and some paper. They let me get this word out. They let me have visitors. Jews can't touch me in here. We're just going to keep expanding the gospel. So think about what he was up against. Everyone knew who he was. Like I said, good, bad, or indifferent. He had the title, he had the fame. In this Christian world, he was a celebrity. But he takes the time in the closing of this letter to thank the ones that he knows help actually make the gospel grow happen. He knows that him sitting in a jail cell isn't what's putting legs to the gospel. He knows that it takes a lot more people than him and a pen to get this thing done. So he lists off all these names, more than 13 different people or groups of people. And poor Justice had to change his name because he was, he was named Jesus at birth, which was probably a pretty common name back then. And he gets named Jesus, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And you imagine the questions he got? Because it even says here, and thank Ju- Jesus, who is called Justice. Poor dude had to change his name. <laughs> Yeah, my name's Jesus. I'll tell you what, my name's Justice. He goes through and thanks all of these people, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and he's, he's implying that there are people in chains with him at this time, that there are other leaders on the ground, and they're doing the work. He's saying, respect these people, listen to them. They are doing the work of ministry. Don't wait for another letter. Go do this stuff. He closes it out by saying, and if you see Archippus, see that, tell him this, that you f- see to it that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And Laodicea, when you get there, if you see your leader, just challenge him. Stay faithful. It's not going to be easy. Keep it up. Encourage him. Pass my words along to him. But another thing that Paul is saying is that this work of the gospel does not center around one person doing the work. It never has. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how there are gifts that are given to the church. There are teachers and there are prophets and there are apostles and there are shepherds and there are evangelists and they were given to the church to what? to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
He says that there are people within the body that were gifted to teach and to preach and to evangelize and to, and to be the apostles, to be the, the ones who are casting a wide net, the ones who are giving a clear vision, the ones who are inspiring. There are people in the church who do that, but there's also a whole lot of other people in the church that are gifted in a whole lot of different ways. And God's going to use some people to equip the body to what? To go do the work of ministry. Some have the giftedness to lead the church, but the end goal has to be to build up the body to do the work. A healthy church cannot and it does not revolve around its pastor. If you are in a church or part of a church or have seen a church or hear of a church that everything centers around one man, that is not a healthy church. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how big their buildings are. If you center your philosophy on one person that's not Jesus, that is not healthy. And that is not the gospel. See, the gospel was handed out to humanity. And God gave the charge to some people to have the giftedness to communicate or to inspire or to come up with the ideas or to evangelize and to equip and to teach and to shepherd. Yes, some have specific gift sets. And some of those people end up in positions like this. Some of those people have their names on church bulletins or on the sign. But their job is to equip the body so that we can all go do the work of ministry. That doesn't give me a pass to not be in the trenches doing the work of ministry because I teach it, because I preach it, because I, I, I am a paid staff person. That doesn't give me a pass. You equip when you have the opportunity to equip, and then you all go. I sat on the end of that float. You know, on that, on that float, I didn't hand out one card. I didn't toss out one T-shirt. I didn't shake one hand. You know what I did? I held my daughter. I sat on the end of the float, and I had a smile on my face the whole time like a proud dad because I watched the church be the church. If I get labeled lazy in that moment, then I'll live with that. I don't care. It was beautiful because it was the hands and feet of Jesus doing the work of ministry. It wasn't that I was taking a break. I was just sort of taking it all in. You see, what Paul's reinforcing that. Think of all the people he's listing off. He lists off two people in particular, Tychicus, who seems to be like he is the leader in the Colossian church. And then when he gets towards the end and he talks about Archippus, he seems to be, the the language implies that Archippus is the, the leader in the Laodicean church. So he mentions two leaders with boots on the ground. And what Paul, in my opinion, is trying to reinforce is, don't pay so much attention to me writing the letter These guys are with you on the ground. Work with them. Encourage them. Listen to them. Work with them. And then everybody, go do the work of ministry. Churches centuries ago took this seriously. And the evidence that supports that as being true is the fact that we are sitting here today. Somewhere along the line, people took this gospel message seriously because you and I received the message. 
And if you're here today and you haven't received the fullness of the gospel that comes in Jesus, you've at least tasted enough of it that you came today. That means there has been faithfulness to the gospel. We don't always get it right, church. We're never going to this side of eternity. We're going to take our lumps. We're going to be imperfect. You hired an imperfect pastor. You have two guys on staff that are extremely imperfect. You have three because Dusty's not perfect either. We're all flawed. That means that our leadership's flawed. That means that our decisions sometimes are flawed. That means our directions sometimes are flawed. And you got to change course sometimes. You've got to be humble enough to admit you did something wrong. You've got to band together and use people's strengths. Don't talk about people's weaknesses because it doesn't really matter to hammer people into the ground and tell them why they're wrong. Lead people to Jesus and let him change their hearts. That's what we want to do. That's what Paul's encouraging this to happen. So what's the point of the letter? That's it. That's what Paul wrote. We've spent weeks in it. We started at the end of August in Colossians. I feel like we could probably tear Colossians apart for a year if we wanted to. And really not ever mind into the true depths of all the things Paul's trying to teach. So I'd ask myself, what's the point? And I think Paul wraps up the point of this letter perfectly back in chapter 1, if you want to turn back with me. Chapter 1 in Colossians, starting at verse 15 through 20. Just listen to this. He's talking about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. What's the point of the letter? What is Paul trying to say? You've heard Adam LaRue and I say this over these weeks several times. The point of the letter is the preeminence and the all-sufficient supremacy of Jesus. Nothing comes before him. Nothing. So if we find ourselves following the rules... Under the gospel, we follow the rules because of Jesus. If we find ourselves loving our neighbors, we find ourselves doing that because of Jesus. We find ourselves loving people well or serving our community well, it's because of Jesus. If our marriages are healthy, because of Jesus. If we're raising children to love Jesus, it's because of Jesus. It's not because we're hitting it all on, on all cylinders with our parenting or with our, our love of others. If we're good employees, it's because of Jesus. If we've seen our bank accounts expand, it's because of Jesus. If we've seen our bank accounts deplete and yet still be able to get up in the morning and have enough grace to get through the day, it's because of Jesus. If you're facing pain and it hurts and yet you're here and you're able to endure through that, it's because of Jesus. 
If you're on a high right now and things are good, it's because of Jesus. If the church grows, it's because of Jesus. It's not because of a strategy and it's not because of a plan. It's because of Jesus. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Listen, we are nothing without Jesus. You can walk through your lowest of low and not dip into despair if you have Jesus. You can face the lowest point you ever thought possible for you in your experience of life. You can dip down to what you think is worse than anyone in any part of humanity has ever faced because it's you that's facing it, and yet you can wake up in the morning and have hope in the midst of that because of Jesus. Our lowest moments keep us from a despair-filled decision because of Jesus. Because the gospel is good news. That we were once separate from God. That we chose sin and He sent a Redeemer to fix the problem. The problem of sin. Jesus fixed it on the cross. You are not too broken for that to heal you. You are not too far away to walk back and you are not too messy for Jesus to clean up. It is not the church's job to clean you up before you come to Jesus. It's Jesus' job to clean you up and He will. And He will. You see, too many times we're afraid to come to church or to be a part of a church or to get really plugged into a church because if you only knew, if you knew the stuff that's in here, the things I've had to live through, the decisions I've made or the things I've done, you would never want to spend time with me. That's the kind of stuff we say and we believe it. We believe it. And yet, Jesus says, You're all wretched. You're all horrible. That's what sin does to you. Sin makes you all unacceptable to my Father. That's what Jesus would say. So you needed a perfect sacrifice to get you back to my Father. And the plan from the dawn of humanity was for me to do that for you. So when the wage gets paid and your wage that you earned, that you deserve, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you are, no matter how moral or nice you are, your wage without me is death. That's what Jesus says. So when the wage goes to get paid, Jesus stands in front and looks at his father and he says, no, you pay me what they earned and you pay them what I earned. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's the point of the book? What's the point of the letter? Well, it's a letter to us. Sometimes read through things like this, and I think it should say, a letter to the church in America. (laughs) A letter to the church in Hapro. The church in Warminster. The church in Warrington. I sometimes need to read it that way. 
because I know that I'm reading someone else's mail. Paul might not have ever known how far-reaching his letters were going to go. I, I don't think he had any idea that his letters would survive thousands of years and teach so many people. I don't know if he had any clue about that. And yet this letter that he wrote to the church in Colossians so many years ago is so pertinent to us today. So timely. Maybe today's the first day that you that are hearing this. Maybe Colossians is a book that you haven't studied a lot or read a lot. I challenge you to read it. It's four chapters. You can read it in less than a half hour. Challenge yourself to read it once a day for a week. See what God's teaching you. We learned it collectively, but if we don't put it into practice singularly, then the church won't advance. Because if we count on everything being done as a group, together, we will get little accomplished for the kingdom. But if we can take these bits of truth and allow them to infect our hearts, allow them to change the way we live, allow them to change the way we communicate, allow them to change the way we interact with our neighbors and our coworkers and our own family, that's a game changer. And then the church gathers to get more reinforcement, to celebrate its victories, to be challenged with moving forward with the gospel. But guess what, guys? We never lose. We know the end of the story. We win. We win. So we shouldn't act like or live like people who lose because we win. So we take this truth. We allow it to infect our hearts and we allow it to change the way we interact with the world around us. It changes how we view everything because we win. And we want to see people in eternity with us because we know we win. And Jesus said, it is my desire that none should perish. And then he gave the responsibility of sending that message out to the masses to us. That's why we want the church to grow. That's why we want to see people come and be a part of the body because it's evidence that people are joining the winning team. There's things in this body that aren't getting done because some of you aren't doing it and because people who... God has laid out for them to do. They're not coming yet. So the work of ministry isn't done by one or two or three individuals. It's done by all the people who claim to know Christ. That's us. That's all of us. Regardless of who's up here. Regardless of who gets paid and who doesn't. That's arbitrary. That doesn't change the call. So, by my estimation, we are equipped, unless you tuned out for the last few months, we are equipped. And when you're equipped to do something, you need to actually do it. So we need to walk out the doors. And at the end of the, the video today, it had a passage from the book of Joshua. You're going to hear this more after the beginning of the new year. But Joshua looks at the people 
They're about to do something crazy. They're about to cross the Jordan and claim this land as the most fortified city in the known world. And he looks at his people and he says, Consecrate yourselves to the Lord, for tomorrow God will do amazing things in our midst. So let's do that. Let's pray. Let's consecrate ourselves to the Lord. Because tomorrow, God's going to do some amazing things in our midst. God, thank you for being a God that can be trusted, a God that is highly esteemed and valued, that our value was assigned by you, that our, our uh, abilities and our talents and who we are at our core, it was all deemed what it is by you. So as we become more equipped in this truth, I pray that we live it out more. God, that you would graciously provide more strength, more wisdom, more love, more hope, more faith to us as we walk out the doors and believe the truth that if we consecrate ourselves to you, you will do amazing things in our midst. Because death was defeated. Death was arrested, and we've been set free. Forever, we're free.